Hey everybody, how's it going? Thanks for joining me this evening. I've got a great stream with a great guest returning, one of your favorites and one of mine, YouTuber Dave the Distributist. Thanks for coming on, Dave. Uh, hey, how's it going? Great, great. So I've had a lot of people uh, talking about this idea of the convention of the states. A lot of people have been talking about this idea that, you know, if we get together and we invoke Article 5 of the Constitution, we have a way to go ahead and find solutions outside of Washington, D.C. And we're going to be talking a lot about that today because I know you've got quite a few ideas about that. But before we get too deep, I want you to introduce people to an idea, one that you had in one of your videos that I think really helps us understand what might be the problem with this solution. I was hoping you could tell people a little bit about the concept of ghost dancing. Okay, so this was not my original turn of phrase. It came from some other blog. I think the blog was Jacobite sometime around 2016. But I elaborated it on it in a video, and and the the specific meme was constitutionalism is the white man's ghost dance. And so, just for people, I know probably your audience doesn't need a lesson in American history, but the ghost dance was a a sort of phenomenon that occurred in the late 19th century, specifically with the Plains Sioux Indians and other Plains Indians tribes, after they had been defeated by the United States cavalry and cleared out. Uh, their culture was destroyed, and a bunch of their leaders, most famously Sitting Bull, after he kind of uh, had this weird stint in Buffalo Bill's Wild West show, uh, took up this weird practice called ghost dancing, which was this strange, what Spengler might call a second religiosity of the Sioux religion, where they believed by dancing this dance to their ancestors, they would uh, sort of resurrect the spirits of dead braves and retake the continental United States. And then their way of life would be fulfilled again. And so an enormous amount of the political energy of the Sioux Indian tribes became absorbed with this ghost dance cult, in including Sitting Bull himself. Uh, and as you might imagine, uh, this resulted in a very famous sort of catastrophe at Wounded Knee. And later, I think there was a, a shootout, uh, not really a shootout, I think a mistaken killing that killed Sitting Bull himself. And uh, for, for a while, this idea of ghost dancing was, you know, in, in my video, this was way back. But I, I've used this concept many times. And this is something you see a lot from, uh, you know, dispossessed people in the West. And you see this in dispossessed people in a variety of circumstances is that they, they gravitate towards things that oh, helped them in the past that had symbolic meaning for them as a people, but that doesn't really pertain to the times they live in. And they're convinced that by reliving these things, they're going to be able to revivify and take power again. And of course, it never really works out the same way. And I, you know, I, I haven't really looked at this specific convention of states. But this and sort of the constant appeals to constitutionalism, uh, this is kind of classic Americanism's ghost dance in many ways. I think everyone can kind of see it now. Uh, these are dead letters. These are documents and concepts that no longer have any vivacity to them. Our government doesn't work like this anymore. And because of that, it's, it's impossible. You're, you're yanking at some kind of chain that's not connected to anything. And, uh, you know, I, I, in my original video, I think I talked a little bit about how you can try to avoid ghost dancing by, by being more aware, coming to terms with what you've lost rather than constantly doubling down on this conception of yourself as an eternal winner. Um, but, you know, there's also this sort of argument, this is just a stage of history we're in and we have to kind of put up with it. Uh, that's kind of a weird introduction, but, and that's the basic concept, I guess. Yeah, no, and I th I wanted to get that in there so that when we explore more of this constitutionalism and kind of the things that it you know uh, offers to people, the plan that it has, we can have that so that you know people are reaching for that concept as we talk about a little more because we'll go through the the idea of the convention of the states and then we'll talk a little more about why constitutionalism might not might not be the answer people are hoping for and what kind of some of those alternatives might be some of the realizations they have to come to and, and that kind of thing. So, so let's go ahead and talk a little bit about the convention of the States plan. So 
the plan for the Convention of the States is basically you have the Article 5 of the Constitution, and it says that you can go ahead and get enough states together where they can have a convention outside of Washington, D.C. And basically the idea is, well, D.C. is broken, right? So the vast yeah. majority of, of constitutional amendments, of course, have been proposed by the actual U.S. legislature, right? Only a handful have been proposed by like state legislatures through the three fourths and then and then passes through the two thirds of the of the U.S. legislature. Usually it's the it's the House uh, proposing House and Senate proposing and then the rest get ratified through the state legislatures. But there's a, a part of Article five that allows you to actually do a convention outside of Washington, D.C. And the idea is, well, if we do this, we can go ahead and limit some of the big corruption in Washington, right? We can we can get around all of the uh, the deep state, or we can get around all of the swamp, and we'll be able to do things. That they have a list of different uh, things they want to do. They want to be able to go ahead and repeal the Sixteenth Amendment. They want to be able uh, to go ahead and make it much more difficult to pass any kind of spending bills. Uh, there, there's a, a whole bunch of different things, uh, uh, term limits on Congress. There would be all these things that the states could do because they're not motivated in the way that the federal legislature is motivated, right? The idea is that, well, of course, congressmen aren't going to pass term limits on themselves. Uh, so we'll do it from this convention of states. And by doing this, we can kind of circumvent all of these uh, corruptions in Washington, D.C., and democracy will just kind of flourish once it's kind of liberated from all of this morass, why would that be a problem? Why wouldn't that be a workable solution for people? They just get out outside of Washington, D.C. and they can make these changes. Yeah. Okay. So maybe I'll use an analogy here. I, I have a kid that really likes watching video games, which is probably not good for him, but sometimes we allow it. And he likes uh, like pretending to play them by having a controller, but it's not plugged in, right? Um, that's more or less the problem we have with this convention of states. Uh, this convention is, this idea is predicated on this idea that, that somehow Washington is controlled or connected somehow vitally to this, this convention. Uh, what, what, like what actually connects them to this convention? What, what binds them to it? Is there an army that's going to enforce it? Are there government officials in Washington, DC that these bureaucrats owe allegiance to? Uh, short of just, unless you're organizing a shadow government from the convention and then have like individual state or, you know, bodies, like individual police departments pl pledge allegiance to the convention as a sovereign entity over that of DC, uh, there's no connective tissue that will link decisions made in the convention to anything that goes on via DC other than this article of the constitution, which I mean, I know it's just, it's to me it's just so obvious that the Constitution is completely dead. Uh, we we ignore whole swaths of the Constitution, and the only thing that we have to justify that is a, a, a stack full of of legal jurisprudence that sometimes is respected and sometimes isn't. Um, and and this is uh, this is uh, you know so I mean, the, the 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 logic here is sort of a missing step, I suppose. What 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 did the I, the problem here obviously is that uh, no no one in my specific circle or in my kind of cultural circle would um, be kind of attracted to this idea. But I would actually wonder what what a defender of this convention would say if I asked them this question, because behind every idea of power or of of sort of government solution, there has to be a bond that that connects you to the person who's actually making the decision that that can that can actually pull power in a direction that it doesn't want to go. And I don't see where that connected tissue is. It's certainly not the Constitution. Well, I think that's what they're they're kind of banking on, right? They're saying Article Five gives the power, right? And so yeah. if you do the thing, then the people running the government have to listen because it says so in the Constitution. But I think we kind of both know that that doesn't really get you very far. For instance, one of the things that they want to do is rein in the Commerce Clause and return it to its original meaning, right? Yeah. But the very fact that the Commerce Clause is so elastic and basically allows for anything through our current system kind of shows that 
formally changing the wording wouldn't actually rein in the power, right? Because if yeah. it did, then we wouldn't have this problem in the first place. And, and I can test that. I can test what you just said there. Like the way you said it, you made it sound like the commerce clause itself, like the elasticity, elasticity lies inside of the language or the clause itself. Sure. Now, the, the elasticity was imposed upon the clause and imposed upon many parts of the constitution by the government itself. Uh, the Constitution does not imbue power. The, the Constitution is, is basically a document outlining how the government is supposed to give power or basically cede power to you or, or not use its power. If the government's not following the Constitution, the Constitution cannot be used as a way to bring them back in line. Uh, this is sort of, it's, you know, it's a self-looking ice cream cone problem. I'm probably mixing my metaphors here, but you know, it's, it's this, it's a, this bizarre idea that, you know, I, I mean, I don't know. I, I kind of want to overuse metaphors, but there's, there's no, there's no way that the constitution is going to bind a government that only exists because that clause is ignored. Whole swaths of the government would be illegitimate if the constitution was interpreted in a literal sense, and so the government would be posed with the prospect of abolishing itself or ignoring the convention, and so it would be this shorter to have the convention literally declare the government to be illegitimate and <laughs> start issuing orders. Yeah, and then yeah, and then you have a whole new uh, adventure. Uh, yeah, hands. yeah, right. that would be. Um, I mean, that would be weird. I, I don't know, actually. <laughs> I, I mean, I think that the the default would be that the government would try to ignore the convention for as long as possible as well. Um, but but at least it would be a, a sort of an awareness of what's actually going on. The convention has the power that the institutions that possibly would swear allegiance to it give it. And the mm -hmm. constitution has the power that the institutions that surround it give it. And all of the institutions in D.C. do not give the Constitution, they don't give the Constitution any more power than they absolutely need to, or that was needed to justify their existence as a bureaucracy. And for the most of the post-New Deal institutions, which is most of Washington, D.C., this means ignoring most of the limited government portions of the Constitution, which are, you know, most parts that Red America likes that aren't strictly procedural. Yeah, the 10th Amendment seems a little little silly at this point, right? Yeah, but, yeah of course. Yeah. So so I guess let, to steel man this a little bit, okay? So I think what most people who are fans of this procedure would say is, well, but we do see the law restrain the government. We do see wins occur, right? There are situations where the government's power is restricted by the Supreme Court rulings or by other actions uh, they are forced to remit certain things at certain times. Maybe it's not as much as we want, but the process can work if properly applied. What would be the problem with kind of that idea? I mean, uh, really, it, it helps to think about it from the perspective of uh, my own kind of shit Libby blue state perspective. The, the Supreme Court is considered a legitimate institution, and it's been granted that legitimacy basically through the narrative that blue America tells itself about America, which runs through civil rights, uh, because the Supreme court has been granted this extreme prestige, it has a certain amount of authority that might otherwise be discounted. If the Supreme court had been sort of an anti-civil rights, uh, backwater or, or, or sort of bastion of resistance against civil rights in the seventies, I think the, 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 the impression of this body by a ruling class would be much different. And there'd be a lot of regulations around it. Uh, and, and a lot of there'll be a lot of questioning of sort of the the authority that it has. Um, the the Supreme Court has the authority it does because the ruling class needs its past rulings to be legitimate against explicit public opinion. One of them was Roe v. Wade. Uh, there's a actually a lot more important ones having to do with sort of voting rights and civil rights law and affirmative action and stuff like that. That that if they're overturned or questioned, uh, you know, huge swaths of, of the legitimacy of the current government kind of fall away. And so because of that, the, the, the Supreme Court is sort of a vulnerability for the, the established United States empire as it exists. And it has to sort of obey that body as, as the decisions it makes comes down. 
but it, it will increasingly try to find a way around that if it feels like it can permanently secure another um, another branch of the government, possibly Congress, possibly the House. That's really interesting. I hadn't thought of it exactly that way, but it's a really good point that because so much of the <clears throat> revolution was placed and you know kind of forwarded through the Supreme Court, that's why they have to pay it the amount of respect they do, even though now it might be working slightly against them. And so there's kind of this necessity to play it carefully because you can't just immediately snuff the Supreme Court's power out or discredit it because so much of the regime is built out of past Supreme Court rulings. Yeah, people don't remember this, but like the civil rights started in the Supreme Court with Brown v. Board. I mean, you remember right. that that started because they, and I always wondered about this, Aaron. You know, they, 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 what they did is they took dolls into, you know, third grade classrooms and they took the kids aside and they showed them a black doll and a white doll and they said, which doll is the good doll? And, you know, more kids, even black ones, chose the white doll. And the idea was, is that this negative perception of their own race was granted to them by a seg like the segregation gave them a negative perception of their own race. Now, the study wasn't complete because it, it appeared that integrated black children actually had a more negative perception of themselves based on the study. Uh, but but the, the the I've always wondered, at one point, is Rufo going to take Christopher Rufo going to take uh, dolls into CRT classrooms and ask third graders <laughs> the exact same question? Yeah, how it might long, get a very different result this I'm time. Not, I'm yeah. wondering, like, how long? Will, I mean, because eventually, you know, eventually you're going to have third grade kid, white kids going like, "Oh yeah, the white doll's the bad one," right? Right. If they aren't already in some areas of this country. Yeah. And no, I think be, that's right. No, sorry, that was a digression. I couldn't, I couldn't help but kind of wonder that. But no, the Supreme Court's where this comes from. Yeah, absolutely. Well, so no, no, this is a little bit of a rabbit hole, but it's an interesting one. So I think we should chase it. So as we see, obviously, you know, we had Roe, which is a huge decision. And there's a lot of people very confidently stating, um, I'm, I'm not sure how true this is, but there are a lot of people very confidently stating that we're going to see affirmative action go down, that the, the court has their eye on it. Uh, I believe Clarence Thomas specifically named it in, you know, uh, his, his, uh, uh, his decision. Uh, as one of the things that that could be on the chopping block. And so uh, I think a lot of people are under the impression that this might be something that we could see in the near future. Now, if that yeah. happened, no, I, 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 you know what you I'm going to say, so? right? Go ahead. Well, I mean, I, what, I'm, I'm from California. This, mm -hmm. is, this is already, <laughs> I come from the future. It's called California. And this happened in 1997. Mm -hmm. We haven't had affirmative action in California for almost 30 years. Right. And that's why there are no racial preferences in, in California. <laughs> they, they don't disappear. They disappeared. Yeah. No, one, no one does them. They're against the law. Don't you know? Right. Yeah. Uh, no, of course not. I mean, this is, uh, this is not, I mean, you know, for, I hate to burst people's bubbles here, but you, you can't command a bureaucracy that's supported by elements of the actual government and the legal system itself to do something that it doesn't want to do if it feels morally justified in doing the opposite and and it's not going and there's no one going to enforce this law um you know the 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 uc berkeley i mean for a year or two after the decision came down to ban affirmative action at and in sort of well i mean it was mainly state schools but ucs qualify as kind of a hybrid system and um since they're, they're land-grant schools, uh, a meaningless detail. Uh, and uh, for a few years, Cal actually had to sort of do a, a, fail, a fair playing field. And like they had entire classes that were almost entirely like Asian. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, but, but then they, they wisened up and they realized like, hey, wait a minute, no one's enforcing this. Because, uh, you know, no, like imagine if you were, you know, if you were caught uh, in Harvard or Berkeley, uh, passing over qualified African students in favor of white ones. I mean, what would happen to your career? I mean, there would be a crater. Right? Not only right. would it be a crater, everyone who had touched you in the last, you know, two quarters of activity, their career would also be a crater. The entire uh, hiring, uh, the entire admissions committee would be fired. Uh, but all that happened was the, the University of California changed its policies and they continue to do preferential uh, admissions under the table. And now you have virtually the same system that existed in the 90s, if not sort of more egregiously biased towards the groups that uh, that are sort of the, favor the favorite in groups. 
and and CRT the the, the ideologies that are called CRT by Rufo. Uh, everyone knows what they are. They're more powerful than ever, and, and more necessary than ever to keep this going. So you think that even if these formal restraints are removed, you're just going to see this stuff perpetuate through the system anyway. There's not going to be, that's not going to throw any kind of crisis uh, into the legitimacy of the Supreme Court or the need for the left to kind of distance themselves or depower uh, it in some way. Um, I mean, it's not as uniform as it is in California. It's not going to make... Harvard and Yale and all, all of the Ivy Leagues and even ones that are owned by the government, uh, they don't have to, this won't even be a speed bump for them like it was for Cal. Uh, they, they already have the model worked out. They can probably just take the emission policies from straight from UC Berkeley and tweak them accordingly, you know, for, for, for an Ivy League environment and just do the exact same thing and get roughly the same results, right? Uh, that's, that's not going to cause them any problems. What it will be able to do, it will create issues for state schools that are in states that have government apparatuses that look like they might take this seriously. So think of sort of like flagship schools in the South, sort of maybe your LSUs or something like that. I mean, that's a bad example because I've heard there's a lot of shit libs. I mean, there's a lot of shit libs in all university admissions, right? right? But but in state schools in red states with you know a hands-on executive branch. Sudden and you know, and and the Supreme Court ruling suddenly, this becomes a little bit more of a dangerous game, and so there there's there is an opportunity there for uh, you know the this to be uh, a little bit more interesting. Now, if people like Ron DeSantis are smart, or you know, governors like him are smart, uh, they'll wait until people try to violate these regulations, create a scandal, and then use it as an excuse to completely purge their administrative staff out of uh, state schools and uh, if they're smart, right? Mm. What you don't want to do is just sort of issue commands to bureaucrats that you know aren't loyal to you <laughs> yeah. um, or, or hope that their fear will keep them in line because they're more permanent than the elected politicians that are trying to hold their feet to the fire. They might be even more permanent than the ruling at the Supreme Court itself might be. Granted that there could be further action in the legislator or the executive branch to put more Supreme Court counsels on or to maybe lean on the existing judges that are on the bench right now to get them to make a, a decision in time to save nine, so to speak, you know, like the classic New Deal, um, pressuring the, of the Supreme Court, uh, New York court packing, as it might be. Uh, and so, I mean, this is – it offers an interesting opportunity, but it just it's, – it's not – Nothing is automatic. All these things are as opportunities, power vacuums that require people to actually step into the void and take specific actions to make sure that the power does not flow back to the cathedral, so to speak, flow back to the uh, the, the unelected deep state. And if there can be an alternative power that does this and consolidates things away from the center, then things start getting interesting again. But it, but it doesn't look anything like, oh, well, no, th- there's this natural inertia that takes us back to dead center of, of constitutional government. That does not exist anymore. Absolutely. Yeah. So I, I want to ask you a couple things. I want to ask you about uh, a little bit about what Chris Rufo is doing. I want to ask you a little more about the Convention of the States and, and maybe if it has some utility in For other sure. areas. But before we move on with that, let's go ahead and talk about our sponsor for today's show real quick, guys. Uh, I know a lot of you are taking care of yourselves. You're working out. You're making sure that you're eating right. And that's really important. You got to go ahead and do things like take care of your liver. I have a lot of people probably already know this, but data from places like the American Heart Association are saying that adults with a fatty liver have three and a half times more likelihood to have heart failure as compared to those that don't. And the American Liver Foundation says that over 100 million Americans have fatty liver. That's not really hard to, I guess, understand right now, given the state of eating and health in the United States. And that means that there's a lot of people at risk, you know, obviously working out, taking care of yourselves. These things are really important, but there's all this stuff in people's lives, you know, alcohol, toxins, you know, people leaning on Tylenol every day, taking statins, cigarettes, all this stuff can affect your liver. And that's why so many people have a sluggish fatty liver that can make you gain weight and can make it harder for you to have energy. 
So you got to go ahead and take care of this stuff. And one of the things you can do, of course, is try some supplements. Now, one supplement that you can check out for liver health is liver health formula. It's an all natural supplement that contains 12 clinically proven botanicals that help recharge and protect your liver. It's manufactured right here in the United States, and it's also approved by American doctors. So if you're looking to ignite some fast burning metabolism, you're hoping to boost your energy, and you just want to go ahead and take something that's going to supplement the hard work you're already doing to take care of yourself, you can try Liver Health Formula, and you'll go ahead and get five free gifts if you order today. First, you'll go ahead and receive a free bottle of their blood sugar formula, which is supposed to reduce your sugar cravings. And you also get four free ebooks that'll help support different aspects of your health. So you can try liver health formula today by going to getliverhelp.com uh, slash Oren, and you can go ahead and claim those five free bonus skin, uh, gifts. Again, that's uh, getliverhelp.com slash Oren. And if you want to go ahead and check out the link below in the description of the video, you'll be able to click on that and check out that offer. All right. So we're talking about the convention of the states here. And, you know, one thing, one argument you could say is what about the utility of having this and forcing the government to just say no, right? That you get this convention together, you go through all the formal stuff, you have this convention through Article 5, you pass an amendment or something, right? And then the government's got to say no, right? Like they have to yeah. formally come out and say, we ignore the constitution or they've got to fabricate a narrative. I'm sure they'll come up with some narrative, right? But yeah, they'll come some... up with a narrative. <laughs> right. But they'll, but, but they'll see, but, but could there be some value in forcing everyone to see at least that the constitution is not being respected by the government in this way? I mean, I, look, I, I think that there is a lot of value in doing things like this because these sort of grand political gestures, if they don't cost you a lot of money, right? There's always an opportunity cost. There is always sort of a, a cost of showing your hand on the political stage. And of course, if you're doing something like January 6th, there's enormous legal cost uh, and, and safety cost to yourself. Uh, so th these, these stunts though that being said they, they do have a political utility in teaching people just how meaningless the constitution actually is in our present world or our present order in the united states the question really is who is the audience uh, who needs who needs to have this grand demonstration in order to learn that the constitution isn't in effect in the way that our founders intended it be in when it was ratified in the late 18th century I mean, just you know, just today, and, and this is not bedposting here because this is apparently released by an established journalist. Uh, we learned, and I think it was the Times of London reported this. Mm -hmm. uh, we can confirm that the, F, the, the that the American deep state was the culprit behind the dynamiting of of Nord Stream two. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah, the, from from what I've seen, some people are questioning the validity of that report. I'm not an expert in this, so I can't know for sure. But what we can't say is this this person's a Pulitzer Prize winner. Not that that qualifies anybody. We don't don't want to use the enemy's credentials. But yeah. there, a lot of people are saying that uh, the, 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 it feels like there's something that could be very valid in the story, even though there is some pushback to it. But the assertion is, yeah, that the CIA had some some play in this, right? Well, I mean, we. we, we... We, we 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 suspect that, and we mm -hmm. we know at this stage that the that these deep state entities are interfering with Twitter. Certainly, sure, sure, of course, yeah. yeah. I'm not saying it's that. anywhere beyond them. Okay, all. but I mean, like it's just it's just you know we have essentially an entire unelected government that is going around and doing frankly extra legal shit, uh, basically on a daily basis to influence political outcomes. For basically pulling the line for one particular party of politicians and power holders in Washington. Uh, the idea that this is part of some kind of constitutional apparatus, that this is just the wheels of good government turning, seem to be to be really farcical at this stage. I'm not so sure what the audience is that needs that needs a convention to teach them that the Constitution doesn't work the way it was supposed to work in the late 18th century. Certainly, increasingly in my state, people don't care about the constitution anymore because at the same time that they wrote that constitutional convention stuff, they wrote the three fifths clause and, you know, don't tell them that, you know, the abolitionists wanted the three fifths clause to be the zero clause. 
um, the only thing that they take they from that clause, they don't care. The only thing they care about that clause is the demonstration that uh, this is a racist document in its original incarnation. So Blue America, for the most part, is not going to care that huge swaths of the original unamended document of the Constitution are being ignored. They don't care about that. They only care about the new civil rights Constitution. And the only the the only value they have for the old Constitution as is as a staging area and as a platform for caring for the, the new vision of, of diversity, equity, and inclusion that, that was born from that like a new covenant. Uh, so so I mean it would it would be really it would you know it would be like trying to convince well, I'm I'm really mixing my metaphors, but it's it's like trying to you know convince that there there's there's some problem in Talmudic law, Christian. Aren't you worried that there's this contradiction in Talmudic law of the ancient Hebrews and like before before the Second Temple was constructed? I mean, why would you care, right? Right. This is not. I mean, sure, it's your ancestor. It's the ancestor of your religion, right? It's it's you know this was a religion. This might have been a religion that was important to the prophets that prophesied Jesus's coming. But but you don't follow this temple law at all, and so contradictions or uh, breaches of, of that covenant or regulation don't apply to you in any meaningful sense. It's a, a curiosity, and so I mean, I guess the only people this would convince, I suppose, would would be people in red states or people who actually think that they live under some kind of constitutional republic. Um, yeah, to me, I think that the the problem is much more is much larger. The problem is not realizing that the constitution isn't in effect anymore. The problem is realize it should be realizing that a constitution is secondary to peoplehood, faith, conviction, and community. And the constitution was only a representation of, of those forces in American life. And that once those forces waned, the constitution was just uh, uh, an ephemeral form that, that dried up and blew away like a, a cicada skin when the cicada actually moves out of it. Yeah, no, I, I think that's true. And I think you're right about the audience, right? It's not going to convince any blue staters there in exactly kind of the situation you're talking about. I will say there are still a large amount of, I think, kind of mainstream conservatives, people in red states who still are not aware of this. You, I understand that it feels like old hat for us at this point. We've been talking about this for a while, so it feels mm -hmm. maybe obvious or something. But there is still a significant portion of the population that is totally bought into the idea that, you know, at some point the government will have to abide by the constitution. And then I, I, I know it feels like it should just be obvious that that's not the case by now, but the, there is, I think still value in, in demonstrating that to people. Now, maybe this, you know, convention of the States isn't the proper way to do that, but it is, I think worthy of constantly making that case. If only because there are still a shocking number of people again, that just, that just have not quite grasped it yet. But you're of course right. And I've done a video, you know, going through Joseph DeMaestre's, you know, gender of principles of, of political constitutions. And he talks about all of the things that you're talking about there that, you know, constitutions are just the final formalization of things that already existed inside your society. Mm -hmm. And the more you have to formalize, the more trouble you're in. I just saw, actually, I, I just tweeted out before with the show, there was, I forget what state it was, but there was some, you know, Lib Magazine that was complaining that there's a law being passed, I think, you know, uh, Milwaukee or something, where people will be able to misgender students. It, it's shocking, you know. Mm -hmm. And by that, of course, they mean students will be allowed to tell the truth, right? And the, and yeah. But people don't understand, like, the fact that you need to pass a piece of legislation to defend people's right to say it's, it's, obviously it's, true yeah. things is it's a worse problem, than that. Right? They will not be compelled to tell lies. Right, right. Yes, yes. <laughs> it's so you even have worse to, than being allowed to tell the truth. Yeah, you, you have to pass a piece of legislation to protect students from the legal ramifications of refusing to be compelled to, to lie. To tell a lie. Yeah. Yes. That, once, once that's, that's where we are. Yeah, once you're there, once that's what the law is doing, then you're well past a problem of just what's written down on paper, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's, you know, this is, we, we can't even speak, we're not speaking the same language. You know, we, we don't, we don't have the same motivating moral concepts or motivating moral aesthetics. 
And it's worse than that because the the leftist narrative is faltering and crumbling. Now, it could crumble for another hundred years. Like I said before, all we know is that it's reached an inflection point where it's it's now headed in a downward, you know, cresting direction. Well, we don't know how long this process is going to take before it actually falls apart for real. But but as their narrative crumbles and its believability crumbles, uh, their vindictiveness increases. And so now not only are we speaking a different language, there needs to be constantly a scapegoat. And that scapegoat is going to have to be Red America, or specifically Red uh, White Legacy America, as is increasingly the case. This is sort of the tragedy because, you know, as I always say, what... The Sioux Indians, what they needed to do in the 19th century would be to lobby for their increased independence and financial self-sustainability and their ability to, to ban things like alcohol from their communities, which was killing them. And, you know, they were obsessed with the past when that was going on. But the um, the uh, the <clears throat> what Red America needs to do more than anything else, it, it needs to come up with a concept of itself as a community that does not extend from some kind of loyalty to an apparatus of the United States government. And the constitution as noble as it is, is an apparatus of the United States government. So, and and right now, red, red America, white middle America can't even come up with a good word for itself. And, and you notice more than anything else, that's what the, what's trying to be suppressed more than anything else by 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 sort of the the legacy press by the cathedral by by the united states deep state so let me ask you then if we don't think this works let me ask you about something that seems like it might be working mm-hmm. um you know we've got chris rufo right and he is down in florida at the moment he's taking over uh basically this uh school in sarasota florida with the help of Ron DeSantis, and he's trying to, you know, pass different things through. Uh, the, I believe they're working on an executive order that's going to ban uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion departments in universities. Uh, there, so we see like actually taking scalps, taking names, right? Like, so what do you think about this approach? If you can't change things through the Constitution, if that doesn't work, what about changing the law in this manner? Do you think that that can get the job done? Is this war, uh, work worth doing? Is that a promising outlet? Uh, I think it's better. I mean, it's 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 good. Um, <clears throat> I, I don't know the details of this, and I kind of want to interrogate the details. Sure. Uh, I, I'm I'm aware of sort of two projects Rufo is doing. Is is there not two? There's one that's the creation of a new university, and another one that's sort of passing regulations on top of existing public universities. So it's there are two twofold. projects, right? Yeah, there's twofold. One, he's not creating a new university, but basically <laughs> he's been placed on the board uh, 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 and the board the board of the uh, new college, I believe is the name of it, in Sarasota. And uh, basically, they have a voting majority, so they more or less have have control of the board in that college. Um, and so, I believe they got rid of the president, they got rid of the general counsel, uh, they're cleaning house, and then on top of that, yes, he's also working with the governor to strike these things, these diversity, diversity, equity, and inclusion departments from other universities. He just went after, for instance, uh, the Florida State University because they had a scholarship that was only for minority students explicitly, and they've now retracted that from their website, that kind of thing. Do you think there's serious headway that can be made there, or is this another form of ghost dancing, a slightly more effective one? What do you think? Well, I mean, it is a slightly more effective one. It's I mean, it's not ghost dancing because it's interfacing with reality. Ghost mm-hmm. dancing is is basically a form of cope where you're preferring a comforting illusion to. I mean, go, the ghost dancing wasn't not like an ineffective military strategy. <laughs> it was the, the pantomime of a military operation that was. I mean, the wounded knee was not really a battle; it was a massacre, right? right. <laughs> and, and and because this was not a military strategy that was ineffective. It was just a, the pantomime of, of a past behavior that looked military enough to fire upon, basically. And uh, the in Rufo's case, I think this is a lot less like ghost dancing and just like kind of, I mean, it's headed in the right direction. So I don't want to say it's a bad idea because mm-hmm. it, it is actually, it's, it's grabbing the bags, it's grabbing the institutions, 
it's creating enclaves that can be used to train, you know, to basically train more elite people that are still within the value system of, I mean, does it even really matter which value system as long as it's not progressive at this stage, uh, not the deep state's value system that are, that are sort of isolated from that. The problem is, is that it's still, it's still not, it needs to go further. And the problem is as soon as we stop kind of pushing in this direction is when the, this will start to unravel. University systems don't exist as sort of hermetically sealed bubbles. They hire faculty and faculty are hired on the basis of their research reputation. The research reputation is controlled by appointment and controlled by journal publication. And those are connected to it's that's a, that's a circulatory system that goes to the cathedrals universities. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what are you doing? Is, is the university going to use that prestige system? Is it going to help professors succeed in that prestige prestige system? Uh, because if it doesn't, then no university professor that has higher ambitions is going to want to go there. And, and if it does, then it's in the process of being converted already. Right, because right. prestige in that university will be governed by that prestige system of journals and appointments. You know, if your appointment to this these Florida universities is not a stepping stone for yourself getting appointed to Brown or Harvard or Stanford or Cal, then it is by definition a less important appointment. Uh, what are you actually influencing? The only alternative is if you're actually, and this is another danger, if you're actually, if, if this appointment is sort of like a, a way of getting into the floor to govern, <laughs> governing bureaucracy. Right. I mean, and, and that has its own dangers because you're, you're doing the exact thing that universities aren't supposed to do, <laughs> right? Uh, if they're going to be good at being universities. So the, the only way to eventually... Uh, fix this problem is to come up with an alternative uh, network uh, of prestige and and truth and language that exists completely independently from that of the current university system that doesn't give a day would actually hold if you if harvard hates you that's actually a career achievement if harvard hating you is a career achievement and you you have people coming to your studying for six years just so harvard can hate them more then, then you've succeeded. Uh, but, but you know, if you're playing the Harvard likes me as career achievement game, your university is going to become corrupted by the same means. And I, I know Rufo knows this. I, my, I don't know he knows this. There, there have been some social media posts that indicate that he, may, he might not have internalized this lesson quite enough. But, um, but, but I, I suspect that he knows something of this because he. He, he, he listens to people in the Claremont circles, and they certainly know this, that, that this has to be the step to creating an entirely independent system of prestige that, that doesn't give a damn about what the regular university system thinks or what the experts think, and that has its own system for testing truth and, 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 and veracity and, and actually holds the, the old system somewhat, not entirely in contempt. Well, wouldn't this be a good step then talking about what you were saying there where Red America needs a way to secure a certain level of autonomy, find a way outside of the system. So maybe a convention of the states sweeping in and, you know, fixing the Congress and the and the the deep state and clearing out the swamp. Maybe maybe that's not the way forward. But if you have a if you have a plan where you can perhaps use advantageous Supreme Court rulings like striking down affirmative action and you have strong governors who can use that as a, a, a tool to then wield to generate some space between them and the authority of Washington, D.C. by cleaning out a lot of those, you know, that infrastructure and that kind of thing. Is that a way that then, you know, guys like Rufo or people who are copying that strategy in other states and other governors could use to create some kind of coalition to allow for that alternative, that that gap between that you're talking about between them and the current, you know, deep state, the current influence, the cathedral, all that stuff. Yeah, I mean, this is we're we're on dangerous grounds because we're we're starting to talking about grabbing sovereignty away from the US government. But if you did want to straddle this line, and, and you know, I think that 
I, I don't really think that the government's itching for a fight. So maybe this is the time to do it right now. But if, if the convention of states was to do something like issue a null constitution, you know, this would be a list of federal statutes and regulations that all states adhering to this null constitution would just not enforce because they're recognized as being not constitutional. So these would be regionally judicially vetoed. In a, and, and, and the way to phrase this so this wouldn't be treasonous would be, we are respecting the constitution by not enforcing these illegitimate unconstitutional measures as agreed by the valid government body, the Convention of States. And this would create a huge radius uh, uh, where huge swaths of federal law and regulation would be effectively null mm-hmm. at the continental United States, especially if all institutions before the convention agreed to adhere or specifically not enforce, adhere to any uh, veto um, regulation or, or you know, nullification that was handed down by the convention in <laughs> in deference to the real constitution that would that would actually have an, a huge effect on the federal bureaucracy's ability to to enforce itself and and gain especially if it's taking revenue out, out of uh, of these out of these regulations now yeah. you know what would what would the reaction from the united states government be if you did that not good <laughs> Right. Sure. Um, I mean, you know, it, the question is how many how many people. It, it would be sort of optically costly for them to do something about this, uh, and, and their default would be to ignore it. But it also would cost them money and power. So I think that there would be kind of this conflict in in inside the regime about how they want to punish this or how they want to go after the the deviant states that that adhere to this kind of policy. Uh, but but this would be a way to actually contest power away from the federal government. Yeah, and that's true. And uh, and I was even thinking again as a really a, a, a more a more slow uh, sep- you know separation of those things. You know, just power drifting away as each one of these states you know ignores more and more of this stuff on their own, or or is able to create some some separation. But yeah, I mean, obviously, a larger one would would be far more sudden. Either way, it's hard to know exactly how the yeah. government would react but well i mean the states sort of doing this one by one has the problem that they're easy to pick off and isolate right and yeah. and if if a bunch of them do this at once it becomes this sort of general crisis that doesn't have a single point of origin mm-hmm. it just feels like a lot of people just stop doing it at once and if it was done right it would be vague enough to not have a specific center i'm sure that the 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 regime would try to find some sort of ringleader to blame this all on, right? Like they oh, have sure. Juan DeSantis. But if it was done well enough such that it was a bunch of individual institutions and state, states all pledging allegiance to the nullification decision that was handled procedurally, I mean, I know this is oligarchy. I know this is decision by committee, but it is kind of like a hack, right? You're, you're, <laughs> kind, of sending, you're kind of sending an oligarchy to you know, partially confront an oligarchy I'm sure Curtis Yarvin is pulling his hair out and going to tell us that this is <laughs> screaming he's, at the, yeah. he's telling us that this has never historically worked. Yeah. But I mean, it, it it is it does trigger sort of an immediate crisis that that, that immediately calls out for resolution, uh, and that would have to be that, and that our current oligarchy would have a very difficult time fixing mm-hmm. without sort of a, appealing to powers that would undermine their own motivating narrative. And, you know, that's sort of where, where, you know, things are getting scary and interesting at the same time. Yeah. Well, it, interesting kind of came full circle on the uh, convention of states there, guys. Well, we're going to go ahead and go to our super chats here real quick. We got a few. But before we do, Dave, can you let people, I know most people are already over at your channel and love it, but just for the few that might not know, where can they find all your great stuff? Uh, yeah, so I have a YouTube channel called The Distributist, which is, uh, you know, a defunct early 20th century ideology. Uh, and, it you know, I, I named my channel that in 2016, and it's stuck since. I have another substack called Fiddler's Green, um, uh, Letters from Fiddler's Green. And I have a recent post there about monarchy, if you want to read it or listen to the video. And, uh, yeah, that's where you can find my stuff. And I'll post links to all my appearances on the substack as well. 
Yeah, I can highly suggest that latest video. It was excellent. So make sure you take the time to go check that out. All right. So Creeper Weirdo here for $2. Hey, guys. Dave, good to see you get over that cold. <laughs> Everybody glad to see Dave nice and healthy. Yeah, it was a, a flu, not a cold, but still, yeah, I can yeah. kind of hear it in my voice a little bit. And then we have Tor McCabe here for $10. I assume the convention of the states is only step one, a ghost stance of demands. Step two has to be a mass civil protest and demands are not met and is perhaps the wounded knee of this plan. Yeah, and, and of course, as always, guys, be very careful about uh, public demonstrations as we've had yeah. this discussion many times over. Uh, th those are those are not for you. Those are those are victory yeah. laps for the people in charge. The people who are not in charge, who are not following the regime, who gather together, are just asking to get cracked down on there. Yeah, no pro. I mean, unless it's very focused on a specific policy issue, no pro locally, no protests and nothing that looks remotely like a military engagement. Now, ghost dancing and wounded knee. I mean, you know, I, obviously. People said it was just an excuse to massacre Sioux Indians, but I mean, it looked like a military engagement from the perspective of the cal cavalry, right? Because that's what ghost dancing looked like. Right. It's, it's, that's the whole mimicking. Yeah. Yeah. All right, guys. Well, I think we got everything there. I want to say thanks to everyone. Thanks again to Dave for coming on. Always great to have him on. Thank you for coming by. Uh, questioners really appreciate it. And as always guys, We'll talk to you next time.